Um, our second speaker is Chris McCann from the National University of Ireland in Galway. Um, Chris is a first year PhD candidate in English at the National University of Ireland Galway, in UIT. Uh, his current research analyzes the role of music as a device for the creation of social hierarchy within Irish prose literature of the 20th century. His research interests are in world and music studies and the coalescence of visual and oral art forms in prose literature. Uh, he visited his MA entitled Seeing in Exile, Music in Irish Immigration Literature at the University of Notre Dame Fremantle in Western Australia in 2017. His paper today... I'm afraid it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Chris's paper today is... <coughs> Person is insisting. <laughs> <laughs> it's a persistent trainer. Would it take outside? Yeah, they can just bring. <laughs> 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 I, feel, I feel like that's quite appropriate given what I'm going to be talking yes, about. <laughs> yes. uh, which is, uh, I, I presume, Brendan O'Hare's yeah. use of music in constructing and reconstructing community in needless into temptation. Yes. Perfect. Thank you very much. Um, so, uh, participating in music is an effective experience in private and it's an articulation of adherence to community values in public. In performing the latter function, Ellen Merriam observes that music is a rallying point around which the members of society gather to engage in activities which require the cooperation and coordination of the group. Broadly defining community or national identity as a construct of culturally encoded understandings of social organisation, then this necessarily also differentiates between opposing values of other groups and individuals. As a result, while music is most often performing a unifying function, it also has the potential to divide and define boundaries of cultural identification. So what I work with is music in literature, and it often appears in literature as a symbol of community and its properties. So as Jerry Smythe observes, the presence of music in literature often speaks of how the histories of each form are enmeshed with the wider question of national identity. Um, as a result, Irish fiction authors, most famously Joyce and more recently Doyle, use music to create layers of cohesion and division within their texts. The example that I'll be talking about today is, of course, Brendan O'Hara's novel, Letters into Temptation, first published as Lig Shinigahu in 1976. He tra translated himself as a very interesting thesis at NYJ about how he actually translated it, just if you're ever interested. So it's set in a town modelled in Galway, modelled on Galway in Easter week 1949, culminating at the ceremonies for the Declaration of the Irish Republic on Monday the 18th of April. O'Hara's novel presents the commemoration of independence as both unifying and divisive in equal measure. It is lingering issues of affiliation and disaffiliation stemming from the long fight towards independence in Ireland and points out the problematic identity politics of the nascent nation while questioning the expression of that nation through music. What is crucial in the text is that where music is ostensibly a rallying point for national unity and cohesion, its characteristics of divergence are instead foregrounded. Music brings simmering tensions to the surface and shatters the tenuous unity engendered by the commemorations for independence, which O'Hare colours with ambivalence and occlusion. In his reconstruction of Galway's real Easter Monday parades of 1949, O'Hara's musical voices compete with and obscure others, and in the novel's climactic musical cacophony, the louder the voice is, the less it is truly heard. Now this is, uh, I don't think they're exactly 1949, but in Galway in 1949, um, it was an interesting time. O'Hare uh, himself portrays it, alias Balian Cashel in the Irish text, Bally Castle in the English, in a rather unflattering way. 
He said himself in 1985 that, I cannot write dispassionately about Galway. I regard it as an essential Irish experience. Galway's proudest boast is that it has slowed time to a virtual standstill. He also noted that Galway is the only city in Ireland where two languages, English and Irish, can be heard in the streets and where strolling musicians play in the afternoon. His Galway of 1949 and the one that people lived in is one caught between the various positions of language, politics and culture for this reason. In the novel, Ballycastle is definitely portrayed as a city of ambivalence. And quote, It was often said that Ballycastle never made up its mind whether to become a country town or remain a medieval city. The ancient narrow streets in the centre of Ballycastle went around in irregular curves and circles, which drove visitors to distraction as they seemed to be trapped in the medieval maze, always finishing exactly where they started. Pierce Hutchinson identified with this portrayal in his contemporaneous review saying that the bleakness of the novel was not the author's own, but that of the society he's describing, which may not have changed since those terrible medieval 40s, quite as much as might be thought. The Galway advertiser agreed, saying that the novel was too realistic, perhaps, for those who lived in the Galway of 1949, while another emphasised O'Hara's capturing of the unique chemistry of Galway, which is perhaps another way of saying ambivalence. This is presented in the text through Ballycastle's political climate, mirrored of the actual political climate of the day. The Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael parties, at odds over the New Republic, are frequently at an impasse, humorously represented by the early description of the process of the naming of a new road. Neither party can agree on which Irish patriot it should be named after, so after much argument and even some small violence, it is given the name Stella Maris Road, which the narrator describes as the pride of the middle classes. The fighting between these political parties and the prominence of a number of characters with experience in the Civil War or the War of Independence brings to light the lingering sectarianism from post-1922 Ireland on the eve of the Republic. That Ballycastle has not made up its mind yet about what it means to be part of an independent Ireland is explored early on through the character of the Puka, the university porter with experience in the War of Independence and, and inexperience with the Free State Army. On page three, it says that his service in the Civil War got him his job as porter at the university, but no sooner was he established in the post that a miraculous conversion occurred and he became the chief tormentor of blue shirts of Valley Castle in the 30s. Ambivalence is also apparent in the newspaper in the text, the Valley Castle Courier, whose editor Mickey McGowan laments that the board of directors of his paper will come down on both sides of the fence and give a qualified welcome to the New Republic on Easter Saturday's edition. On the evening of Friday the 15th, McGowan tells the aptly named protagonist Martin Melody that the following day's edition will emphasise the need for unity and stress community cooperation throughout the weekend's commemorations. And we can see how O'Hara reconstructs this by looking at the newspapers of the day. So this was from the 16th of April um, in the Comic Tribune. And if we look in a little bit closer, some plants on the Republic, it will conclude with a little ceremony on Air Square. Um, and we know that... Um, where am I? Uh, the two elements are noteworthy. One is that it's a little ceremony, which is perhaps not befitting of the occasion, and also that the council has to appeal to the citizens of the town to provide their own flags. We also see from the same edition uh, Fianna Fáil's decision to boycott the uh, events of the day except for the mass. <laughs> Where is it? Have it gone? Oh, it's gone. Anyhow, so Fianna Fáil decided to boycott the festivities. So the mass and the parade were intended to solidify and give form to the culture unity independence was meant to bring. 
Music featured prominently at each stage of the commemorations, separated into three distinct sections. A high mass at the Pro Cathedral, a parade through the city streets, and a ceremony at Air Square at which the New Republic would be formally announced. And as we can see from this article, this was on the 23rd of uh, April, so the week following the celebrations in the Connacht Tribune, um, where the Bishop uh, Brown pleaded for Concord. And yet he has to plead for it. Moreover, only a small fraction of the huge congregation were able to gain admittance to the cathedral. The parade that followed the mass consent commenced outside the cathedral, and we can see how music featured, as again the report of the 23rd of April describes. After the mass, a parade of Old IRA, Kumanamon, FCA, Knights of Malta, and the Red Cross, accompanied by the Renmore Pipers Band, the St. Patrick's Brass and Reed Band, and the Labour Fife and Drum Band, marched through the principal streets of the city and passed an air, a saluting base at Air Square, where Mr. Michael Donnellan, TD, Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Finance, took the salute. And here is an actual photo of this saluting base. Um, there's this kind of sense of solemnity rather than joy. The only real colouring and decoration is this flag off to the left of the stage. Um, and the, it's a very ramshackle construction as well, which kind of adds to a sense of incompletion. You'll also notice that in this photo there is not there's no woman visible. There was one woman on the welcoming party at the time. So, we know about who was included, who was excluded. Let's look at the music again. So, there's a veritable cacophony of different styles, representing all the sections of society, competing for attention. The Renmore Pipers represent the voice of political and military nationalism, partly owing to the military barracks in that suburb I used to live next to them. The St. Patrick's Brass and Reed Band possesses loud foreign instruments under the patron saint's name. And the Labour Fife and Drum Band suggests the dock workers of Galway's port, as well as the Labour movements integral to the ideologies surrounding the Easter Rising. In O'Hara's reconstruction, and isn't that a gorgeous little cheeky grin? <laughs> there is a heightened sense of disorder that parodies the original parade. Ballycastle has, apparently, two marching bands the St. Francis Xavier Brass Band from the Franciscan Sodality, and the Dockers Fife and Drum Band from Irish Town, modelled on the clatter. The Brass Band was of very recent origin and had so far learned to play three tunes, The Wearing of the Green, The Free Flowers, and the theme music from the film Message of Fatima. <laughs> Again, in this we see a competition between musical voices, uh, each emblematic of a competing socio-political view. The fictional St. Francis Xavier Brass Band parallels St. Patrick's Band of the actual parade, but in a, parody, in a parodic way. Two of the only songs they know how to play are patriotic nationalist ballads, yet the third, the theme from a film, absurdly lessens the symbolic impact of their repertoire. <coughs> the Dockers, Fife and Drum Band represents the particular culture that the clatter in Galway represents, a strong heritage of Irish language, unable to withstand the rising tide of progress and modernity, representing the ironies of cultural nationalism in the first half of the 20th century. Further, further illustrating this is uh, the incongruity of this occasion is that the brass band's uniforms and instruments were brand new, and for this reason, Councillor Mackin put them at the head of the parade, behind the army colour party. On the other hand, the Dockers band is consigned to bring up the rear, for all that remained of their original uniforms were their greasy and tattered peak caps. They were all offended by this slight, and their leader threatens to, quote, shove his fife up the councillor's ass and play the geese in the bog through his ear holes, as well as a lot more course offers. <laughs> Crucially, they are described as good musicians, 
although most of them boozed heavily and couldn't march in a straight line if the reunification of Ireland depended upon it. <laughs> this is a poignant description, positioned ironically against Merriam's conception that music is the focal point of activities that require co cooperation and, I dare say, the coordination of the group. This is supported by what occurs next. Just as Councillor Mackin was about to give the order to strike up the music, the Dockers band struck up Roll Out the Barrel and drowned out everything else completely. Everyone took this to be a signal to march and the parade moved off. Councillor Mackin had to gather his robes around his waist and sprint towards the brass band, shouting at them to play for all they were worth. The song that the Dockers band plays, Roll Out the Barrel, whose, uh, whose chorus, it's a musical song, the chorus proclaims, Roll Out the Barrel, we'll have a barrel of fun, which is foreshadowing the, you know, the oncoming chaos. At the top of the hill at the air square, or the equivalent of the square, a crowd is gathered for the ceremony. As the parade makes its way up the hill, someone shouted that the parade was coming, and they all strained their ears to catch the strange music that gained strength and faded away again, according as the procession negotiated the maze of twisting streets. Such a mixture of music was never heard before in Valley Castle. In a fit of anger and spite, the Dockers band refused to play anything but roll out the barrel, which they kept belting out defiantly. Councillor Mackin finally succeeded in getting the St Francis Xavier brand, uh, brass band to strike up the theme music from the message of Fatima. But their nerve was almost gone, and for Love, Money or the New Republic, they couldn't turn into either of the other two tunes they knew. When the crowd in the square saw and heard what was happening, they squirmed with delight. They hadn't come in vain. The crowd is less interested in the pronouncement of the Republic and the memorial statue about to be unveiled than in the spectacle before them. Councillor Mackin unveils the sculpture and announces, long live the Republic, but the crowd around the platform, quote, clapped in such a half-hearted way that it annoyed the councillor even more. The parade passes the podium, populated by a small group of churchmen and other dignitaries who were sat on the platform to receive the parade, people whose dignity would not allow them to march with the Dockers Band. Among these is the Professor of Irish at the University, whose job it is to read the 1916 Proclamation. When he does so at the appointed moment, his mortal enemy, the professor of archaeology, interrupts him with a triumphant whoop. A mistake, he says. A mistake. Upon my solemn oath, there's a mistake. The entire party descends into chaos, complete disarray, while every member examines the inscription on the Justin Vale Memorial, trying to decide whether it ought to read, fan the flames of freedom alive, or to freedom of freedom to life. Eventually, Councillor Mackin succeeds in calming the professors, but the mad Monsignor Blake, who got into his post by accident, surprised everybody by catching, uh, catching the microphone and quavering in the most comic way. Alive, alive-o, alive-o, crying cockles and muscles, alive-o. Music is again a source of chaos. In frustration, Councillor Mackin implores the Dockers Band to play the national anthem for the love and honour of God. The leader of the band, still slighted, instead signals his men to turn on their heels and go to the pub. What occurs next encapsulates the disarray of the occasion. Now, it's an extended quote, but please forgive me because it is worth it. Sing it yourself, roared the crowd. Rise it like a good man. Think of our patriot dead. The St Francis Xavier brass band stood looking at one another sheepishly when the bishop's secretary took charge of the occasion and shouted to the young man in the broadcasting van to get a record immediately. The young man was enjoying the total confusion so much that he had to be twice nudged into action. He jumped into the back of the van and began to root amongst the records. Silence, you bloody jackasses! 
shouted Councillor Mackin. Silence for our national anthem. This had an immediate effect, and for the first time that day, the councillor was in complete control of the situation. But it was certainly not his day. In his blind rush, the young man slapped the wrong record on the turntable, and the, the now silent crowd heard the opening bars of the Ballycastle Cayley Band playing a lively jig. He whipped it off again, but the damage was done. After that, there was no possible recovery. The crowd cheered and began to dance, singly and in groups. The pooka caught the cook, swung him around and shouted, Another couple here for the walls of Limerick. Around the house and mind the dresser. So, a national anthem is meant to be a musical totem of cultural and social affiliation, and hence unity. If we look at Henry Glassie's musical ethnography of Fermanagh in the 1970s during the violence of the Troubles, we see how, in comparison to Leaders into Temptation, unity is upheld in such a public space. Glassie writes, Different songs overarch differences of age and taste to preserve aesthetic diversity and establishing immediate social unity. Music holds them together and caps the night. Then come closing time. Young men from the north, willing to put their bodies on the line, stand straight and solemn while Peter Flanagan plays the national anthem, The Soldier's Song. Glassie emphasises the unity of that moment, but vitally neglects to make comment upon the voices that are excluded by the national anthem. In the novel, O'Hara's use of the anthem questions its meaningfulness and its ability to unite the people. Indeed, while music is a kind of social mortar, Lilith O'Leary has observed that it also functions as a veiled discourse which may at once uphold the system at the very moment it criticises it. The crowd in Ballycastle creates their own momentary communitas, rejecting political constructs in favour of vernacular musical communion that occurs naturally. The fact that they dance in this moment is important. As Jane Desmond observes, movement is a primary social text, the articulation of which signals group affiliation and group differences, whether con consciously performed or not. Granted, they are not consciously creating an alternate nation in the typical sense of the word. Yifu Tuan observes that dancing, which is always accompanied by music or a beat of some kind, dramatically abrogates historical time and oriented space by allowing participants to live briefly in presentic, unoriented space, and the idea of a precisely located goal loses relevance. The national anthem debacle therefore reverses the paradigm that Declan Kybert has set of Ireland as not so much being born as made, gathered around a few simple symbols, including a flag and an anthem. And unity is no longer a precisely located goal in the text. Even 70 years later, this is still problematic, as anyone who saw the Irish rugby team line up at Twickenham on St Patrick's Day would have seen. The choice of anthem, who is excluded, who is included. But as David Cooper has pointed out, traditional culture in Northern Ireland in all its manifestations is still widely used as a marker of religious affiliation and ethnic identity. As a delightful but dark coda in the final pages of Leaders into Temptation, a dance in a hall that follows the ceremony is disrupted by a brawl between pro and anti-treaty veterans of the Civil War. The musicians in the hall keep playing in spite of the fighting. And the only thing to stop the dancing is when an anti-treaty veteran named Shanahan blows up the memorial and in the process himself. In the end, even music is silenced by sectarianism and division, and those problems of affiliation and disaffiliation remain unresolved. In the text, the coming of the Republic does not bring real unity, and the dramatic conclusion foreshadows the future dark times of the Troubles. What does bring momentary togetherness, however, rather than any anthem or patriot ballad that may be linked to politics, is immediately accessible vernacular music. However, it is not lasting, and rather than cooperating, 
The numerous voices stifle and occlude one another.